Thank you so much. Appreciate that. It is good to be here in my home church, and I love being able to say that um, because I'm not here all that often. And so when we uh, started to attend uh, Willow Park, my wife became much more faithful than what I am because she's here all the time, and I'm here roughly about 50% of the time, but please don't ask her that because she'll say it's less than 50%. She keeps pretty close track to my travels and where I am and what's going on. Um, It was about a month ago that uh, Pastor Phil... Uh, called me and I was sitting in a Starbucks in Calgary and, and my phone uh, buzzed and I was waiting for an appointment and I looked down and it says Phil Collins and I thought, hey, that's my pastor. And so I was kind of excited about that and, uh, and so I answered the phone and uh, Phil says to me, Russ, he says, where are you? And I said, well, I'm actually in Calgary at a Starbucks right now. I said, what's up? He goes, oh, he says, you live the high life, don't you? I thought, well, if being in Starbucks in Calgary is a high life, then I'm there. Yes, that is me. And so uh, anyway, he chatted and said, uh, we'd love for you to come and speak at some point when it fits in your schedule. And so we looked at some dates and uh, arranged this here date. And so I I was pretty excited because Willow Park is my home church. And so uh, looking forward to to that time. And so when I finally was chatting with my wife about it, she loves Pastor Phil and Pastor Glenn. And and so I told her, hey, hon, I'm going to get to speak at Willow. And she goes, oh, boy, that's kind of neat. She goes, you know, if you could speak with an English accent, I'd probably listen a little more attentively. (laughs) So earlier this week, she asked me if I've been practicing. I said, no, honey, I'm not speaking with an English accent on that Sunday. And so if you came looking for that, I'm sorry I have to disappoint you. That is not going to happen this morning. You just get me, plain old me. Um, It is my conviction and, and belief that the greatest need that all of us in this facility this morning share is that we need to meet with God. And so uh, that's been my prayer, that's been my hope, that's been my uh, ongoing desire as I've looked into this passage and and studied the story of Ruth, that um, God would connect this to our hearts, to our souls, that we would come with a hunger, and and maybe if we aren't hungry this morning, that's more of a realization of our need than of our health, but if we come hungry this morning, I pray that you indeed will have your soul satisfied by meeting with our Lord and Savior. Let's pray together, and then we'll look into the book of Ruth and the story that's there for us this morning. Father... We do thank you for who you are, that you are the Lord God Almighty, and that, Father, the scriptures make it very clear that you do not change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever, the scriptures tell us. And so the unchanging God, Lord, we would ask that you would come, and that you would meet us here, and that you would speak to us, and and we claim your promises, Father, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, and that... You are here right now. That's an amazing truth that you are here right now. And so, Lord, as we dive into this, we pray that you would guide us, that you would empower us, that you would speak to us, and that our souls would have an incredible encounter with you this morning through the truth of your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So the story of Ruth is um, a story of great hope and uh, in the midst of trying times. And, you know, as I travel and as I get a chance to meet with churches and pastors as a superintendent, often what the case is is that I'm going into situations where things are not healthy, where there are challenges and there is brokenness and there is heartache. And and so as I come in as that outside person, I walk in and I sit down with whether it's be a pastor, a church board, individuals in the church. One of the questions that I often ask is sort of a standard question is, where do you see God at work right now in the midst of what's happening here? And honestly, the answer often is, I don't. I don't see God. I'm so frustrated. I, I just am and, and upset. I, I can't see what's going on here. There's nothing good that seems to be happening. 
And that's just an honest response. On the opposite side of that honest response is also the truth that even when we can't see it doesn't mean that God's not at work because I'm absolutely convinced that in the deepest need that we have, in the midst of our deepest brokenness, there's this incredible hand of God at work. If we will just maybe take the time to back up and ask him, show me, God, show me. And as we work through the story of the book of Ruth, you're going to see that Naomi at first, um, her brokenness does not allow her to see God at work. And, and we're going to hear some pretty incredible statements from her. But as we move along, we're going to see the eyes begin to slowly open up and she's going to start to see the hand of God at work in her life through Ruth and through Boaz and through these other characters that are involved. And so I just want us to walk us through some of the truths of this passage. And, and it could be that if you are in one of those situations right now where brokenness and heartache is your experience, this is so good for you. Maybe you're in a situation where, hey, everything's good right now, and so it might be for something in the future that's coming your way that we're not even aware of, that God's saying, hey, I want you to hear this this morning. And so just let's go through and work through. And, and the book of Ruth is one of those books that has uh, a history of great appreciation for it. And, and so this from the Jewish commentary, the five megaliths, it says, in style, it is matchless, fresh, simple, and graceful. The spell of the book is altogether irresistible for it lies in the heroine whose name it bears. And the chief charm of Ruth herself is her unselfish and devoted love of all that is finest in the physical and the spiritual. The German poet Goethe called it the loveliest and complete work on a small scale ever written. What a statement. That there's nothing more beautiful and irresistible than this book that was written so long ago. And then Alexander Schroeder, who's a literary critic, he said, no poet in the world has written a more beautiful short story. Wow. So obviously, there's this sense that there's something special about this book, even from those who may be even outside of the faith, those who look at things and, and study the, the literary aspect of things. But the message from God is even more powerful than when we think of the actual beauty of how the book is written. So let's just work through an outline. If you've got your Bibles, I invite you to turn it there. Some of the words will be on the screen. Some of them will be uh, ours, others that I'm going to read through and stuff. And so uh, follow along in your devices or on your, in your scriptures. So understand that, first of all, four truths that I want us to see as we work through this book that are, are uh, helpful when we encounter those tough times in our lives is to understand that tough times just, they will come. It's just a reality of life. It's a reality of the situations that we encounter. So let's read through the first few verses and get a picture of what's been going on for this person named Naomi and her uh, broken life. It says in Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 that in the days when the judges ruled, and this is the time when the book was written, and so to give you a context, an idea of just how perhaps bad things were at that point, the very end of the book of Judges in 21 verse 25 says, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. So things were not good from a uh, big picture situation, all right? That's the time in which Naomi was living. And so in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab, had to leave their homeland. Oh. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephathrites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. So, famine, not good. Bad times. They have to leave their country and go to another one. They go over to Moab. While they're there, Naomi's husband died. Elimelech's gone, and she's left with her two sons. 
They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Wow, things are not great. To give you an idea of where they traveled from, and so here's Jerusalem, and just south of Jerusalem is Bethlehem. They would have left Bethlehem, come down through Edom, come over here to Moab, to the land that, where they would be able to get some food. Moab today is modern-day Jordan, all right? So just of a picture of where things were at and where they were going. And so traveled over there. So they arrive because of the famine. Elimelech dies very shortly after that. About 10 years go by, and then we see that Malon and Kilian both die as well. And so for Ruth, or for Naomi... Things are not good. She's a widow. She's lost two sons. Life is tough. At this point, Naomi is having a hard time seeing anything good going on in her life. They have each other now, Ruth and Naomi. We're going to get through the picture of how Ruth decides that she wants to stay with Naomi. She's going to stick with her broken-hearted mother-in-law. They're going to head back to Bethlehem from whence they came. But if we jump ahead in Ruth chapter 1 to verses 19 through 22, we see how Naomi can only see the bad things that have been happening in her life. It says in verse 19, So the two women, that's Ruth and Naomi, went on until they came to Bethlehem. That's back to Naomi's hometown. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Interesting phrasing. Perhaps it had to do with her countenance. Perhaps it had to do with the fact that she had lost her husband and her two sons. And she comes back just with this young woman named Ruth. And so in verse 20, it says, don't call me Naomi, she said. Call me Mara. Because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full. I had a husband. I had two children. Life was okay. We were leaving because of the famine, but life was still okay. But now listen to what she says. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, living in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Made it back home, but not good. Now let's be clear, as we look at the opening part of the story of Naomi, that we're not talking about things that are fair or right. We're not talking about uh, um, things somehow uh, being Naomi's fault because they weren't. It was just life. Life had happened to her. These experiences, the famine, she had no control over that. That wasn't a bad choice that Naomi had made. That was a, a global situation at that point in time that she had no control over. And so she does the best thing she can. She goes with her husband and her sons and they leave to go to Moab. But while they're there, her husband passes away. Again, nothing Naomi could have done. And then within the following 10 years, she loses two sons as well. These are hard blows. These aren't little blips in the road of life. These are the kind that knock you back and and set you down and, and make you question like, what's going on? Why is this happening to me? And Naomi's response is so... So honest. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter because of all the things that have happened. Life has not been good. We need to understand that. That there are just times in life when times are tough. It's not fair. It's not right. It's not good. It's just life. Times are tough. 
So we carry on and we look and we understand that commitment is crucial though in the midst of tough times. And here's the part where Naomi can't probably see the the hand of God guiding her and helping her at this point, but she does have this wonderful woman who's come alongside of her named Ruth who's going to make an an outlandish statement and commitment to her. Ruth gives us this this statement that that really does stand the test of time, and we're going to look into that a little bit. And the context is, is that Naomi wants to head back to Bethlehem because she's got no reason now to stay. The famine's over. She wants to go back home. And so she tells her two daughters-in-law, look, you guys go back to your homeland, to your families, because um, I'm just going to go back to mine. And, and so finally Orpah says, okay, yes, yeah, she's going to do that. But Ruth says, no, 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 I don't want to do that. And so at this moment, I just want you to use your imagination and put yourself in, in Naomi's sandals. As Ruth comes to her and says, Mom, I'm not going. And look what she says. But Ruth replied in verse 16, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. And your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. That's great so far, but it even goes further. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So in the midst of this tough time that Naomi's having, here's this young woman that comes along and says to her, Mom, I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what happens here. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to go step by step. In fact, I'll go step by step with you right to the grave. And Naomi, still having a hard time seeing that there's anything good going on, and she at this point really does miss the level of commitment that Ruth has for her. When you heard those words that were just read, you might have recognized them because if you're my age or maybe even a little bit older, you might have said somewhat of the context of those words because they've been incorporated into wedding ceremonies. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. I'm going to walk with you all the days of my life. And they go all the way back to that woman, Ruth, looking at her mother-in-law, Naomi, and saying, I'm not going anywhere. I'm committed to you. That level of commitment is deep and real, and there's no sense of a shelf life associated with it. I think we live in a commitment-challenged time. We will jump out of commitments at the slightest little inconvenience in our own situations. We say, I'm committed to this, but if things don't go my way, if it starts to go off the rails a little bit, then boy, I'm going to leap and find some other thing or person or individual or church that I can be committed to. It doesn't seem to take us much to switch our commitments. A number of years ago, I was pastoring in Canmore, Alberta, and and my uh, grandmother passed away, and so I... um, got on a plane and flew back to Ontario to, to go to her funeral. And, and as I was flying back home, I was just thinking of the tremendous loss that I had experienced with my grandma passing away because she was my number one prayer warrior. She was that person who I knew every single day was praying for me. She assembled the ladies in her seniors' residence on a weekly basis several times a week, and, and I was one of the top numbers on their list of people to pray for. And so as I was going home, I was saying, God, I, 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 don't, I, feel, I feel more vulnerable now, actually, 
Because I've lost this incredible person who I know was praying for me every single day. And her commitment to me was so incredible. So I got on the plane, came back after the funeral and went back to my church in Canmore and was speaking that following Sunday. And and I shared a little bit about my, my sense of loss because of the commitment of my grandmother. As I shared that, I had a woman who I didn't realize at that point in time was at the back of the congregation, at the back row of the church. And she told me later, she said, Russ, when you were talking about your grandmother, I felt like I wanted to jump up and put my hand in the air and let you know God had handed the baton from your grandma to me. And I was now supposed to be the person who was going to be praying for you on that daily basis. I was blown away. And so to this day, that woman, I still stay in touch with her and I send her prayer requests and, and she updates me with things that she's praying for me. And, and anytime I have that sense of deep need, I just fire off a, a message to her and say, I need you to pray. And she said, Russ, I've never stopped praying for you even though our lives have been separated by miles now. We're not separated at all on the level of her commitment to me. We take this a step further and we look at our Heavenly Father. And do you realize how committed He is to you? When Ruth looked at Naomi and said to her, Naomi, it doesn't matter where you go, I'm going to go. It doesn't matter what step you take, I'll be right there with you. I'm going to go to the grave, and where you die, I will die. Well, in the book of Deuteronomy, in verse 6, God wanted the, the nation to know His commitment to them. And so in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, He says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. Now listen to this. He will never leave you nor forsake you. What a phrase. The writer of Hebrews ended up quoting that in Hebrews chapter 13 as well. That we serve this God who has made it clear and plain that he's a God of his promises. And he said, I will never ever, ever, under any conditions whatsoever, leave you. So that's why it's one of my favorite questions when I walk into difficult situations and challenging, um, heartbreaking scenarios. Where is God in the midst of this? Because you see, I've got this promise from God in the scriptures that he said, I'm never going to leave. So whatever you're at today, wherever you're at and whatever you're facing, just know this, that you have a God who is in step with you, walking with you through your circumstances, whether you feel him, whether you sense him, whether you're aware of him, whether you can understand that in any way, shape, or fashion, I want to reaffirm to you that your God is right there. Because it's his promise. His level of commitment absolutely supersedes anything that Ruth had said to Naomi. He's that committed to you and I. So Ruth and Naomi end up, they go back, they arrive in Bethlehem, and, and it's, um, it's the har- barley harvest time. And so the third understanding we need to do is understand that hard work is never a bad move. And Ruth is a classic, classic illustration of what it means to be a hard worker. Times are still tough for them. They get back home, there's no way to provide for them. They have to try and figure it out themselves. And so they get back to, uh, to Bethlehem, and, and we pick up the story of what's going on. It says in Ruth chapter 2, verse 2, that 
And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. That was actually a law for the Israelites. They were supposed to leave uh, grain behind for the poor in their area to pick up for them. So God was being taken care of the poor in that way for them. But they had to go and work at it. Naomi said to her daughter, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Remember Elimelech? He goes back to Ruth chapter 1 in the opening verses. He's Naomi's husband, or he was Naomi's husband. He's gone now. But they're working in a field of a relative of Elimelech's, Boaz. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. Greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather. And so she came to the foreman of the harvesters and and asked this, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field. Now here's the interesting part. And has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Ruth had been working hard all day. In the midst of trying circumstances, in the midst of tough times, hard work is never a bad virtue to have. Now, let's be clear. It doesn't mean necessarily that if we work hard that our hard times are going to be over with. That's not a direct line necessarily. It just means that in the midst of the hard times, don't be afraid to work hard. It's never a bad idea to work hard. We'd see in the passage that obviously her hard work was noticed. Pick up the story in chapter 2. Verses 10 through to 13. And it says, At this, Ruth bowed down with her face to the ground, and she exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Notice how Ruth is well aware of who she is. She's not a local. She's from a different country. She's from outside. And she says, Why is it that you've noticed me? And then verse 11, Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Many scholars believe that it's that statement there that tells us that Ruth did have a relationship with God as a result of that statement there, understanding who God is to Ruth. She's noticed Now, if we jump down to verse 17, in the same chapter, chapter 2, it says, So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley that she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. Then she carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. And Ruth also brought it and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. And her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the, place, or the, one, about the one at the, whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. Hmm. Ruth is beginning to have her eyes opened. She realizes that things are moving in a positive way, finally. She's back, sort of stepped back and she sees the hand of God. And she says, bless the man who took notice of you today who saw your hard work, who took you under his wings, who protected you, who watched over you. And that story is going to continue in chapters 3 and 4. Hard work. Hard work is never, ever 
a bad thing for us to be practicing. Ruth stands out in this story as an example that tough times don't give us the option to quit. Tough times don't tell us to throw up our hands and say, well, that's it, I'm not doing anything else. But tough times can be that time when we say, you know what, I'm just gonna get and go to work. I'm gonna try and do the best that I can do with the circumstances that I find myself, and I'm gonna work hard in light of the tough times that we see. Chapters three and four really end up being the story of understanding that we can trust the kinsman redeemer. And again, this was part of Israel's history and part of the way things had been made up so that when um, the men of a certain family would pass away and they didn't have sons to carry on, then there was this picture of a kinsman redeemer who God had uh, organized and put in place for them to sort of they could keep on going with their family lines. In Baker's Evangelical Dictionary, it says this, the kinsman redeemer was a male relative who had the privilege or responsibility to act for a relative who was in trouble, danger, or in need of vindication. So here's these women. They don't have any men to act on their behalf. And so God has provided this idea, this picture of a kinsman redeemer, kinsman being part of the kin, part of the family, redeemer being the one who would come alongside and provide or save or protect. Boaz was a close relative meaning that he could be the kinsman redeemer, but three conditions had to be met in order for him to fulfill that role. Those three conditions were that he had to be qualified as a kinsman, meaning that he had to be the closest single male relative. Secondly, he had to be able, meaning that he had the financial wherewithal to purchase the property and protect and and take care of financially those he was going to redeem. And thirdly, he had to be willing he comes aware, and we'll pick up the story in chapter 2, verse 20, where Naomi says, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness. This is Naomi's eyes awakening to the fact that God was at work in their midst. The, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And she added, that man, Boaz, is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers or kinsman redeemers. Then we jump down to chapter, two, verse, or chapter 4, verse 2. It says, Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so, because he's going to now enact this transaction where he actually becomes the kinsman redeemer. Verse 3, then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So what's happened here is that there is a kinsman closer to the family than Boaz. And so Boaz has brought him into the picture and said, all right, you're the one who fulfills the role of being the closest, and so here's the deal. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so, but if you do not, or if you will not, tell me so that I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I'll redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. So again, that's the provision that God had set up for the nation. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. So Boaz then steps in and he fulfills all the qualities necessary for this to take place. So now, because this one is back to the picture, he is now the closest relative, single. 
Secondly, he is able, he has the financial wherewithal. And thirdly, different than the one previous, he's willing. So you had to be closest, relative, you had to be able to do it, and then lastly, you had to be willing. Three different conditions that Boaz fulfills. Scholars tell us as well that that picture is simply a picture of Jesus in the New Testament, being our kinsman redeemer. He came and was born of the Virgin Mary so that he could be our kinsman, one of us, fully God and fully man. He is able because he purchased our salvation on the cross of Calvary. And he is willing because John 3.16 reminds us that God so loves the world that anyone who wants to call on him can and will be saved. What an incredible picture that we get from this story of Ruth. Practically, day to day, how does this actually work out for you and I? How do we put this into practice? Remember I told you that Naomi's issue was that in the first couple of chapters, she couldn't see anything good. And then finally her eyes are kind of like opened up and she begins to step back and she sees the picture. And I said that as I travel and I visit, one of the questions I ask constantly is, where's God? How's God working? What do you see God doing in the midst of you? It came to life for me just recently. About a month or so ago, my daughter who lives here in the city asked me if I would come by and, and pick up London, who's our two-year-old granddaughter, and spend the morning with her because Laura May had some errands she had to run. And so I said, oh, sure, I'd be glad to do that. And so I dropped my wife out of work and drove up to their place and, and pulled in the driveway. And I, so I'm walking by the front window. All I see is the front window's wide open and London has made the corner around the kitchen and she's bolting through the front room totally naked from the top of her head to the tips of her toes. I have no idea what's going on, but I look at my watch and I realize I'm here at the appointed time. And so I knock on the door. I hear Laura May yell for me to come in. I walk in and she says, Dad, we'll just be a few minutes. The night before when she was putting London to bed, she told her that I was coming to pick her up. So in the morning when she first woke up, the first thing she asked for was me. And Laura May said, well, he's not here yet, but he's coming. So don't worry. So when she heard my voice when I walked in that front door, and Laura May said, we're not quite ready yet, all London wanted was to come to me. So she comes back down the hallway, around the corner again, still not a stitch of clothing on from the top of her head to the tips of her toes, stops right in front of me, puts both arms up in the air and says to me, I'm wetty. <laughs> I said, honey, your heart may be ready, but there's other parts that we've got to take care of. Got her in the car, took her down to our place, spent the morning with her. Laura May came and picked her up. Later that day, I'm in my office And I'm just praying and I'm saying, God, I am so thankful for that little girl. She is so precious. I love spending time with her. And he impressed upon me. He said, well, you remember when she came to you and put her arms up and she told you that she was ready? I said, yeah, that was was so cute. And it was at that moment when I felt God said to me, that's what I want from you every day. I want you to wake up with me on your mind. I want you to come to me and be so excited that we're going to spend this time together that you just put your arms up to me and say, oh, Father, I'm ready. I'm ready wherever you want to go, whatever you want to do. However life is going to play out this day, I'm ready because, you see, you're the focus of my heart and my soul. You're the only thing that I really, truly want more than anything else in this world is I want to be with you. And I have to be honest, 
I don't start every single day that way. But God keeps on calling that story back to my mind. And remember that little girl? All she wanted was you. She just wanted to be with you. I want that same hunger from your heart to mine. That's how this works out. So that in the midst of whatever's going on in our lives, we just continually, day by day by day, we throw up our arms and we say, oh, Father, I'm ready. I'm ready in the hard times, but I'm ready in the good times. I'm ready when exciting things are happening, and I'm ready when just the routine's happening. It doesn't matter what the day brings, Father, because the most important thing is that I'm ready to just be with you. Naomi got to that point, but it took her a while. I think we all need to live with that point day in and day out that we're just ready to be with our Father. Let me pray for us and allow God to speak to us again and then we'll have a closing song as we wrap things up this morning. Father, I thank you so much for the truth that you love us unconditionally. I thank you that you are the true kinsman redeemer. That Lord, you have plans for us that we can't even begin to imagine. And that so often, Father, you are at work right in our midst, but we're like Naomi, don't have eyes to see it. We see the hard things, we see the brokenness, we see the heartbreak. And yet, God, if we'll look, your hand is there. For Naomi, your hand was bringing Ruth into the picture. Your hand was the commitment of Ruth saying to Naomi, hey, it doesn't matter what goes on, I'm gonna walk with you, mom, every step of the way. Your hand was Boaz coming in. Your hand was so often seen in this story. And Father, I truly believe that your hand is just as active and evident in our lives as we'll step back and look at it. And Lord, what we need to do is have that same kind of heart response that a little two-year-old girl had to me when she just wanted to spend time with me and she said, I'm ready. Lord, may we too be a people who are ready to journey with you wherever and however that may go. And we'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory in the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you.